It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. 2012. It's kind of crazy to say. I mean, it's, it's, I've missed being on the Money Guy show. I know we took a little bit of a break for the holidays. And um, Bo, can you humor me and let me do one quick thing before we actually start the show today? This wasn't rehearsed, so I have no idea what you're about to come Oh, you with. know where I'm going. I mean, you kind of heard me. I, ha- I had it in there giving me inspiration. <laughs> so you're going to have to work with me as I scroll through the, the playlist here of the iPad iPod, what, is this, it's a song, a clip, what is this? This, this is 1989 is what I'm talking about. So we're 2012, we're ringing it in with some 1989. <laughs> that <laughs> well, makes sense. That's, well, when you say it like that, it kind of makes it sound like it's old. But, um, but, but to me, it's not old because I'm young at heart. 1989 right here. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm sure this is not the inspiration of why this song was written. This was not to kick off a year when they did Kickstarter. This is probably about putting adrenaline into your heart because somebody's OD'd in something, but um, love this song. So I felt like this was the perfect opportunity to start a financial podcast. Make sure you guys are awake. You hear that? That's right. You know when you, you, you're getting old, Bo? Uh, well, how, how's that? What do you consider this? Oh, that's classic rock. No, it's not that's classic <laughs> rock. You know how it's not classic rock? Because I was already thinking about girls and driving cars at this age. So you're, that, that's what makes me feel a little bit older when you say stuff like that. But welcome to the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. And I know that you, if you're brand new to the show because you got a new iPad, a new iPhone, or maybe you're checking us out on your new Droid device because you're checking us out on Stitcher or some other podcast listening device, Welcome. And I promise, even though we are a little goofy, uh, we're going to make this as fun as possible. We're also going to give you an education to help you spread every dollar that's in your back pocket, that's in your bank account, that's in your investment account. We're going to make it go that much further, as well as make good financial decisions. Let me give you our website. It's money-guide.com. You can also write the show. You can write me directly at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guide.com. You can also write Bo, B-O at money-guy.com. And let me tell you a little bit about my background. I'm actually, we have a registered investment advisory firm here on the south side of Atlanta. We also, brand new, have also a location up in the Brentwood, Franklin, Cool Springs area of Tennessee. That's right. That's brand new. That's a 2012 thing that we've added. So if you're one of our listeners up in Tennessee, please feel free to write us. We'd love to hear from you. But my background is actually... I got an education in accounting, worked in public accounting while I started managing money, and I feel like that adds a little bit of a diverse background besides my my certified financial planner. Um, We've also got Bo Hansen who joins me on the radio. I'm going to let you kind of share for yourself. Bo, tell me a little bit about what's different about you, and then I'll brag on you if you don't fill in the gaps good enough. So I'm actually, uh, I am a financial advisor here at Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management as well. Uh, My formal education is in financial planning. I actually have a degree in family financial planning. I'm also a certified financial planner. Uh, and I'm currently pursuing the the chartered financial analyst designation, which He's is uh, two thirds of a CFA. Two thirds of a CFA. I don't know if you can, if you're out there on the CFA board listening. I don't know that I can actually say that, but I am a level three CFA candidate. So that's uh, kind of the big thing that I have going on this year. In addition to I'm getting married. That's a little personal bit about me. 
Um, but my specialty is investments and retirement planning. That's kind of what I add to the firm. Um, just to brag about yourself a little bit more, to tell the pass rates in the first two exams you took. Uh, I think I, I took level one in December of 2010. I want to say the pass rate was right around 37, 36, 37%. Um, and then I took level two actually this past June, and the pass rate was right around 39%, I think. So 39% of that 30-something percent. Right, right. So that's a, it that's kind a... of weeds them out slow, but surely. So that's a, that's a great lead-in. I hope you guys had a great holiday Christmas period, got lots of time with the family, got to focus on what's important. And um, just a reminder for those that are trying to do the same thing that we're doing here at the Money Guy Show, I almost couldn't control myself how excited I was, but came in here on Tuesday and updated my net worth statement because it's just so exciting because I want to make sure my wife knows what we have going on just in case something happened to me, but it's also exciting to kind of look at that spreadsheet every year to see what's changed, what's made money, what's unfortunately lost money with my real estate holdings, but it's something I think that everybody really should consider doing. Now, you're probably wondering, what are we going to do today's show on? Well, since we just entered 2012, let's talk about kind of what the 2012 outlook is. Let's join in with everybody else. But let me tell you the difference between the way we're going to do this and the way everybody else is doing it. We had to do a lot of research for this show, and I figured out that most people who do 2012 outlooks, it's trash. It might as well not be any different. Let me tell you, give you the equivalent. In the financial media, it's the equivalent of Us Weekly, Tiger Beat, because you get a bunch of people who come in there and go, you know... Um, this year could be all over the place, so go buy Coca-Cola stock. I mean, it really is that ridiculous. Nobody kind of gives you a big outlook of what's going on with asset allocation, with the economy. So we've kind of dug through it all, and we're going to give that to you. We're also, a lot of you, I hate when they publish these things right in that last week of the year because, let's face it, kind of the whole country shuts down that last week of the year because we're in between Christmas and the New Year's. But there were some incredible gems that were published in the Wall Street Journal um, we're going to go over that. It was actually the best charts of 2011. I think there is some tremendous data that was within those spreadsheets and charts that they released on the Wall Street Journal. So we'll go over that with you. we we'll even give you a link so you can hopefully pull that stuff up. And as we're talking about it, you can have a chance to look at it. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to be discussing. I do want to have one moment since it's the beginning of the year. Everybody's probably got their New Year's resolution. I am included in that. I, you know... Went to the gym again because I've gotten to the age, I'm getting close to 40, worried about the health. So Bo and I, you know, Bo hangs out at the gym. So I went to the gym with Bo this week, and I have to pick on you just a little bit. You know what I'm going to say, because <laughs> oh, I, I came know. in this morning telling Nikki about it. You get to the, you know you hang out at the gym a lot. When you walk in and the employees immediately run up to you to start showing you their Christmas gifts, like their new workout outfit, their new shoes. This is, I kind of felt like the duck out of water hanging out with, uh, I don't know, the, the guy who's completely comfortable in the water because uh, there really were employees coming up to Bo. That's when you know you spend too much time in the gym, but it, it works out well. <laughs> Somehow you still have time to do a great job at work too. Um, so if, you're doing, if your news, New Year's resolution is getting in shape, congratulations, good luck on that. But if it's also to get your wallet in shape and your financial statement, I think it's the right place. And let's kind of, let's do, Bo, I asked you, I said, which order do you want to do this? You said, let's go. Let's start with the past yeah. first, and then we'll move into the future. So the first thing we have, those top five economic charts of 2011. And this was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal. I don't have the date in front of me, Brian. Do you have that? It says December 31st. Oh, okay, so it's actually on December 31st. There's a great, great article they come out, came out with. It says, 
Hey, we're going to let you know what we felt were the best five charts we published throughout the entire year of 2011. And they were, they were spot on. Some of these things were really, really good. And I've made notes. And what I, if you're driving, we're still going to try to give you enough visual information here. So even though you can't see these charts, you're going to be able to say, wow, that is incredible what they're saying. But if you are at work or a place where you can actually pull these charts up, feel free to go to the money-guy.com website to, to pull the, this link up um, when you go check out the show notes. The first one they had on here, they said jobs. In October, we looked at employment performance and previous economic expansion to give us clues as to where jobs come from in the past and where they might come from in the future. So looking at this chart, Bo, do you have any thoughts on it? You know, it's kind of remarkable just visually to look at it to see, you know, what happened previously, like what a normal recession looks like, what a normal expansion looks like, and then to see kind of what the last, you know, decade has been. To see how unique it is. Because this this stuff is not like, you know, a lot of times when you look at research, they go back the last 10, 15 years. This actually went all the way back to the 70s on this chart data. And you you hear a lot of people kind of equate the, the situation we're in now with how it felt maybe in the late 70s. Well, this chart kind of, wow, it makes you really think about the way the jobs are looking right now. Um, because let me give you the visual of how this normally looks. You typically have a downturn, and then right past the downturn, you see this mountain of jobs that are created. It almost looks like Mount, you know, maybe you have a small little mountain here, and then Mount Everest shows up in some of these recoveries. And then, you know, you have it come down again with a little bit of a crater, and then it comes back up. Well, looking at this, I mean, every decade is a little bit bigger, meaning that there was a downturn in the early 70s, had a pretty good amount of growth come on in the mid-70s, another downturn, even greater growth. You know, early 80s, we had a downturn, and then lots of growth through the late 80s, early 90s, another downturn in the early 90s, and then kaboom. I mean, I guess that's got to be the internet, the technology, tremendous growth in the 90s, um, leading up to the 2000s, which we had a crater that was bigger than the others with our jobs, and we had a slight recovery where it was starting to make look like that mountain again that you see over the decade after the downturn, but then 2008, look out below. I mean, this thing looks like if you were making an analogy, you know how there must have been a meteorite or, or something that hit the earth to, to make the dinosaurs go right, extinct? Right. This is what it probably would look like. I mean, there is 6.6 million jobs that would need to come back for this to truly get us back to break even on, on, the, on the jobs creation. Pretty incredible stuff because it shows how different this downturn of 2008 was compared to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, I thought it was also interesting, and then we'll move on to the next chart. It actually broke it down by sector, meaning that this was, it went all the way back to the 70s, all the way through where we are right now by sector. So let's go through these real quick. Manufacturing. Manufacturing was kind of interesting because it has, it, even in, I mean, really the last three decades have not been good for manufacturing. You can see that there have been periods in the 80s and 90s where there's been modest growth, where it's actually come out of the recovery, you know, out of the downturn, enter into a recovery phase and have some modest growth. But I got to tell you, the 2000 in general, 2008, I know was bad, but even the dot-com, you can see it starting in 2000, manufacturing jobs have tanked throughout the 2000s. Not a good period for manufacturing. That's probably the globalization of the world that we're in right now. A lot of those jobs have been leaving the United States. Moving on to government, this one kind of shocked me because I watch a lot of cable news. Uh, I see things, and there's actually a chart in here that shows, you know, there is some concern about government spending. But I got to tell you, 
all these new jobs that you're hearing these people tell you about that are in government, yes, there is an increase in government. Don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not as bad as what you, you hear a lot of these people say. It's kind of flat. Um, so I was kind of shocked by those numbers. Retail trade. Retail trade typically has a nice, healthy growth after a downturn. It's been flat to down pretty much the entire decade of the 2000s. Professional and business services, this one shocked me as well. Because if you ask me, what's the fastest growing part of the economy? Most people off the street will tell you service sector. Because, hey, if manufacturing jobs are going overseas, you want your kids to be accountants, to be doctors, to be architects. You know, it's the old Willie Nelson song that I've always joked about. Um, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys or whatever. But it really is true. And then you look at this chart and it shocks you. Because service industry... I mean, it had a tr downturn during the dot-com bubble when it burst, and then we had a nice little increase. It was starting to look like that mountain was forming, but then 2008 happened, and holy, I would actually say, looking at these charts, the professional and business service industry has been hit harder than even manufacturing. Well, no, manufacturing looks like it was hit a, a little bit harder, but it was probably the second hardest hit industry was the professional and business service. But what I thought was interesting is that everybody says, well, we're losing manufacturing jobs, but the service sector is filling in the gaps. This shows that they're almost related. Right. They are both feeling the pain at this point. Educational and healthcare um, had modest growth. I mean, the, the, I, don't, I don't see any period on here that they've ever had a downturn. It's just their growth has been subdued a little bit. Leisure and hospitality, flat to down. Bo, I'm going to let you take the lead on the next chart. Yeah, so this next chart is really interesting. The title of it, Slow Going, How the Current uh, Recovery Measures Up. And there are a lot of uh, small nuances in this chart, so I'm going to kind of give you the layout. So if you don't have it in front of you, it's still going to make sense. But here, here's the premise of it. The, the last recession, the 2008 recession, ended in June of 2009. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at all these different parts of the economy and see how the two years into this recovery, from June of 2009 to June of 2011, compares to two years leading out of all of the previous recessions dating back to 1945. That's pretty incredible, 1945. It's, it's really, it's unbelievable. So, that was, so what they want to show you is what's the fastest, what's the average, what's the slowest, and then where does the current recovery stand in that? So that's kind of how the chart is. If you're looking at it, you can read into the details, but I'm going to kind of give you the 30,000-foot overview of it. Um, one of the areas they, they first talk about was GDP. So on average, the two years into a after recession, two years into the recovery, average GDP has risen by about 10.1 percent. Wow. So where do we stand currently? We're currently at 5.5 percent, but that's actually not the lowest we've seen. And GDP growth is essentially how, how was the net worth of our country improved. The slowest was actually in 1980. It was only at 1.6 percent. So we're even... This recovery, we've improved even a little bit more quickly than we did immediately following the 1970s. But that also could be an indicator of how big the crater was, That's too, exactly though, because, right. you know, statistically, the bigger the drop, the better the recovery looks like on paper from a mathematical standpoint. The, the next two are just total jobs and total manufacturing jobs. Brian just, just touched on that, so I'm not going to spend any more time on that. The fourth one, really, really interesting, home prices. So here's the question. How have home prices done in this recovery since June of 2009 relative to how home prices have improved historically? Probably not too much surprise. The average, 0.6%. So on average, home prices have increased in the two years following a recession, 0.6%. This current period, negative 10.1%. That's huge. So that just shows you that 
really housing is a drag on our economy. Even in, in the realm of historical recessions, housing is really, really hurting things. Um, the next two kind of are tied together, disposable personal income and personal spending. Um, obviously, disposable personal income, the average is about 8.8%. This recovery, we're at about 1.8%, which is the worst. This is the slowest that disposable income has increased in the two years into recovery since 1945. Personal spending is not the lowest, though. We're actually at 3.9 um, when the average is 8.5. Um, it goes into exports and goods. Bank lending, which, which is probably not hard to believe with how, how bad cr the credit crisis was, bank lending, this current recovery, is the worst at negative 4.1%, when historically, coming out of a recession, it's been 19.7%. So what that tells me is lending has fueled a lot of recoveries, hasn't really fueled this recovery. So that's, um, if we can get things back in order to where we can start loaning money, making money on loans and that sort of thing, we probably could see some, some pretty cool growth in the economy. And the last one. Well, I think a lot of people are ouching over the debt. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Leverage, we've gotten so drunk on leverage and debt that a lot of people are ouching from it so much they've gone the opposite way. I mean, that's why I like what Dave Ramsey does on getting consumer spent. I mean, talking about how you handle your budget, getting out of debt. And I think that's why one of the reasons, if you want to know, hey, why is Dave Ramsey so popular with this get out of debt? Look at these numbers, and it shows you. So we got so drunk on debt that an advocate like him who's telling you to get out of debt, is, um, his, his message, you know, rings around in your head pretty easily in, the, in this point in time. Go ahead, Bo, and talk about corporate profits, and I'll ding in too. This last one gets me excited because what, what, what ultimately, if you're an investor, what ultimately drives the stock market? It's companies. When you buy a stock, you have an ownership in a company. So why is that significant right now? Because if you look at corporate profits, the average two years following a recession, corporate profits are typically up 37.4%. In our current recovery, it's at 46.6%, but we're seeing a relatively flat market, as we saw in 2011. So what does that, what does that say to me? Well, yeah. It says to me that we have companies pumping out profits that are probably undervalued in terms of equity valuations. Yeah, you, you see people all the time. I mean, they're going, gosh, I look at my statement, and last year was not a good year. And you're telling me now that in the last two years, corporate profits are exceeding the average. They also, they're actually very close to, to what's been the all-time average on increase. What does that mean? I'll tell you, Bo hit on it, but it means that valuations, the price-to-earnings ratios and things like that, are coming down to very, very nice levels. And let me tell you, they've also, something that's unique about this recovery Dividend payments are actually increasing much faster than usual to the point that you can get a better yield on some stocks, actually many stocks. There was a period, I don't know if we're still in that period, where the S&P 500 was providing a dividend higher than the 10-year treasury, which is very unusual. I read an article about the 2012 um, you know, when I was going through all the, the pop trash that I was telling you about out there in the financial media, I did keep seeing that a lot of people were saying it's unbelievable in their 30 years of managing money, they have never seen where you can get a better yield on stocks, meaning the S&P 500 and a lot of the stocks that are household names, than you can get on the U.S. Treasury bond. That really is incredible. And we'll talk about that even more so in a little bit. Um, Bo, you think we're ready to move on to the third chart? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. The, the third chart I had was consumer spending. In November, um, the Wall Street Journal looked at how consumer spending on goods and services are diverging since the recover recovery began, with households cutting back 
on non-essential service spending. So um, I'm going to pull up that slide. And what I noticed on this one, the big thing was discretionary spending. I don't want to, I think there's some more slides I think we can spend more time on, so we're going to move through this one pretty quickly. But if you look at discretionary service spending is only up 2.8%. That's, that's the all-time low when you look at all these other periods, like 82 is 13%, in the 70s, 1975 is 9.9, 70 is 9.5. The lowest one besides our 2009 of 2.8 was actually in 2001. In this same very decade, it was 5.6. So, so much lower on our com- consumer expenditures. And that ties directly into the next slide that I'm going to go to, which is debt. And this all ties together. In October, we looked at how consumer and businesses are cutting back on their debt burden while the government's load is growing heavier. Now, this is, this is when you guys have to cut me a little slack because I told you the jobs thing seems to be a paper tiger, You meaning that there's not a lot of government jobs being created. But I will tell you, holy cow, you look at this chart. And guys, if you're driving, if you're exercising, this is the one, if I could say, hey, go look at a chart that's going to freak you out. This is the one because it's exactly what I've thought. I've, I've experienced this myself is I'm trying to I look at my net worth statement that I've already bragged about that we did in, on, on Tuesday of this week. And I've noticed when I looked at my five-year history, I just kind of flipped through them and looked at my debt portion kept getting smaller and smaller, meaning I'm doing the same thing everybody else is doing. I'm deleveraging, trying to get out as much debt as possible with my mortgage and other things. Um, and that, that is very evident with what's going on in this chart with consumers. Also, businesses. It's, and this is historically not normal, guys. If you look at, I'm looking at how households in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s, early part of the 2000s acted, usually in periods of recovery, they actually kicked up their debt levels. You see negative, meaning that this chart, instead of all the other charts going up, it actually goes negative in the last few years on households, on financial and businesses. They dropped the hammer on their debt. I mean, if you could, it looks like they dropped four times as much debt as even us Yep. individuals in the households. Non-financial businesses actually are pretty flat. It looks like, you know, it's a it's a pretty big chart we've blown up, but it looks like that might even touch a little bit negative, Bo. I mean, it's almost break-even to a right. degree, but they're not adding any debt. And then you look over at the federal government, and this is the one that freaked me out a little bit. They're almost at an all-time high on how much debt we're increasing. It's really incredible if you look at the timeline here. You can see debt was increasing in the, for the government specifically, was increasing in the 70s and the 80s. And then the 90s, we kind of peaked out in the middle level, and that's probably 94, you know, when Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and all of them were battling out about the, the balanced budget. And you actually see, because of what was going on with the growth of the economy, government went down substantially. It's kind of unusual to see such a negative in government spending. And then all through the 2000s, we were pretty flat. I mean, there's a little bit of an upswing there. It looks like in the early part, probably because of 9-11. Right. And then it was pretty flat all through the 2000s. And then in 2008, some poor kid showed up with his lighter and lit the bottle rocket, and this thing has taken off to orbit. It, it's amazing. I mean, Bo, any thoughts on this? No, no. If, if We're going to put a link to this out on the, uh, the show notes. So if you get a chance, you're in your car, go home, check it out. Just look at this chart. It really is. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's kind of eye-opening. Because everything else is headed straight down except for um, the government. And that's the part that I worry about it from a GDP standpoint is because, let's face it, 
historically GDP, government as a part of GDP has stayed and hovered around the 19 to 20% range. And that's considered pretty healthy. I mean, it's funny if you go across a lot of economy, economies throughout the world, the healthy ones try to keep it below 20%. We've now broken and broached where government of total GDP is a, you know, getting close to 25%. And then our debt to total GDP has now exceeded 100% um, just on, on recurring. That's we've got to be careful here. And that's not a, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the, my mantra for 2012 is this. It reminds me of high school when I used to, I was not on the football team, but I used to see the, t- the, the football players walk around with these shirts that said big team, you know, had a huge letters that said big, you know, the team was in big letters and there was a little tiny me underneath it. And you ask a football player, what does that mean? They say, big team, little me. Well, that's kind of what we all need to be thinking right now is that we've got to come together and figure out how we can get all this stuff figured out so we don't run this thing off the road. Keep it out of the ditch is the political analogy that's been used a lot recently. So um, it says, in the title of this is From Spenders to Spendthrifts, um, Consumer Shrinking Debt Load. So that's pretty pretty incredible chart. The next one, the, the last one is actually in February, we looked at the changing face of U.S. trade. We tracked how much of the U.S. exports and imports have grown since 1990 and note a major shift in which com- countries are most prominent. Bo, did you have any thoughts on this one? No, it's just interesting. You know, don't need to spend a lot of time on this. What it just shows is who have we been importing to, who have we been exporting to, and then how has that changed over the last 10 years? So it's kind of, you know, kind of interesting if you're into the whole geographic uh, sort of how countries the, interact with one another. It's, it's pretty neat to look the at. The three notes I made was um, on the exports, meaning who we're selling goods to. Canada's had substantial increases from the 90s to 2000, 2010. Mexico's had some good increases. You know, we've been selling more stuff, obviously, to Mexico. China... If you look at it, we've had substantial increases to China, but let me give you the big footnote but disclosure here. Go over to now U.S. imports. This is another one that you're like, holy cow, they really had to almost change the way this chart was laid out on the sheet because China was a minuscule thing in the 90s. 2000, it was starting to become bigger, but they were still fourth place overall on who we, you know, we buy goods from in the, in the early 2000s. So now in 2010... They almost, you could add up the bottom half of who we deal business with, and it's just as big as what we do in China. And that's, the, that's why, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, people say, isn't China, aren't you worried, you know, because there's all these doomsayers that say China's buying all of our debt, aren't you worried about what happens if, you know, they, if they played some currency battle with us, some financial warfare? And that really is a concern, but I will tell you, this shows right here, we're buying a lot of Chinese goods. We're almost attached at the hip. Yep. So this is a temporary thing right now that get, should make you sleep a little bit better is if they can't shoot us because if they do, they essentially quit be, their right. heart quits beating as well. But it is something we need to work on in the coming future. So let's roll right in because I just looked at the clock and holy cow, we spent a lot of time on 2011 charts. But I think that's good because that helps you figure out what decisions do you make in 2012. So let's jump right in. Kiplinger's 
as I said, we went through a lot of trash articles where you get some people, you know, a lot of seven-figure money managers, these guys, you know, probably driving some great big cars, looking good, and then the, the gist of the article is go buy a Microsoft and Coca-Cola and you'll be okay because they're American companies and, you know, they have a dividend. And, and I'm like, well, that doesn't really help out that much. So we, we dug around and we found a good article with Kiplinger's actually came out, Our Investment Outlook for 2012. And I... I thought what was interesting, I always like it when an article starts out with a good quote from your Warren Buffetts or somebody like that. Well, this one actually started out with a quote from Benjamin Graham, which, Bo, you're the CFA guy. Well, I was just going to say, if you know, we like we love talking about Warren Buffett quotes. You know who Warren Buffett learned from? You exactly. know who was kind of his mentor? Benjamin Graham, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, this stuff is timeless. But I thought the quote that they used was very good. It says, in the short run, the stock market is a voting machine considered by the ultimate, well, I'm reading on what, who Benjamin Graham is. They considered him the ultimate investing sage. So let me read that again. In the short term, short run, the stock market is a voting machine. But in the long run, it's a weighing machine, meaning that over time, a company's shares will command the price its business prospects deserve, measured by such basic yardsticks as profit, growth, balance sheet strength, and management vision. So, I did think, because it talked about something I've had a lot of clients contact yep. us about, Bo. It's these so-called high-frequency traders who computers programs, you know, will take these minuscule price movements and they, they in a nanosecond or so they can profit off of it. And you feel like, hey, as an individual investor, how am I supposed to compete against these computers? Or even that, protect myself. Yeah, I, protect myself I mean, they're the moving so quick. And I thought, and I'm going to just throw a little more, you know, throw a little more, squeeze the gasoline or kerosene, whatever you're pouring on your fire, um, to stoke this up a little bit more before we kind of give you the antidote. It says the effects have been dizzying in 2011 through November 4th. This is kind of shocking. Standard and poor 500 stock index saw intraday swings of 2% or more on 56 trading days, 50 of them in the second half of the year. The index logged closing gains of losses of 2% or more in 29 days in 2011 compared with an average, man, time must have been easy back then, of five a year all the way back to 1950. That's over a full month of trading that the market closed either up 2% or down 2%. That's crazy. That's like that's the roulette wheel. You know, I mean, if, if you're just sitting out there flopping, holy smokes. Um, they go on to predict that 2012 is going to be a lot of continued volatility with seesaw market that will likely experience both breakout rallies and occasional downward spikes. Now, that sounds kind of wimpy to say that because that's the easy answer, but I think it's probably true. I mean, I hate to give a cop-out answer, too. I'd love to sit here and go, it's going to be rock and roll time in 2012 or, you know, get the heck out. It's, it's not like that at all. I think there's just so many crazy things going on in the world with Europe with, you know, these emerging markets, even China, there's even some things popping up now in the landscape that scare you a little bit about China. But you then you see those charts like I showed you from 2011 that show that corporate earnings are going through the roof. So, I mean, it, it is a mixed bag of what's coming up, um, but it's, it, it, it is what it is. But are there things you can do to your portfolio to immunize that risk? Um, I thought I liked, I'm going to talk about the corporate earnings too, to a degree, is because they, they did a good job, because I've seen this figure pop up in a lot of the articles I've been reading. A lot of the consensus is, is that corporate earnings, I've already told you how great they've been doing on increasing with productivity and going up and issuing better dividends. They're expecting that in 2012, we're probably going to see 
corporate corporate profits and continue to increase by six to seven percent. Now, this is what I really liked because I love when something is analytical and good and math based because they said, well, if, if corporate profits are going to go up six to seven percent, what can you as an individual investor expect? Well, dividend yields are between two and three percent right now. So if corporate profits go up um, six to seven percent, you can get two to three percent just in dividend yields. You're probably, you know, looking at a seven to to nine percent rate of return um, in the stock market, which is pretty healthy compared to what we've had. And then I think what's what's really cool about that is that's what you say, seven to nine percent. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. They actually said eight to nine percent in the article. I kind of. I hedge this up more on the modest side at 7%. So so let's say 7 to 9%. I think last year inflation was only 2%. That means you're getting a pretty substantial amount of real return, meaning actual return purchasing power power dollars to you. In this non-inflationary environment, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, and I think the best way to look at that, because inflation last year was estimated to be right at 3%. They're thinking because of unemployment and other things, there's still kind of this black cloud that hangs over the economy might ease down to 2% in the coming 2012 period. But it's uh, that's what you've got to think about. If you've got, if you're going out there and you're scared to death, I had this conversation with a client yesterday is that, well, I don't know if you call her a client or a prospect because it was a client that actually got scared, got out in 2008, and now is coming back, which is, I don't know, and it, now I feel like it's going to be a marketing way for me because when people say, how many clients did you lose in 2008 and 2009? I'll be like, the ones that actually fired me was two, but now we've got one coming back. So it is, it is one of those interesting things. But when I was talking to her, this is the thing that I thought was interesting. Is She says she's scared of losing money. Well, think about this. If inflation's 3%, what are you getting at your bank account? I would be shocked if you tell me you're getting better than 20.25%. Most of them are basically just saying, hey, you're lucky we're not charging you a fee to hold your money. Um, as you see on the nightly articles, all of them are adding a lot of transaction fees. Even the lead story in the, in the Consumer Reports this month is how to fight your bank and the new fees that are coming down the pipe. So if you think about it in those terms, you've got to find some way to get some type of return because inflation's gutting your underlying performance. And she goes, yeah, but it's safe. It's not losing. And when I was in that diversified portfolio, I felt like I was losing. Well, I was like, you felt like you were losing, but you truly weren't. If you look at your investments on a three, five-year basis, meaning go out to a five-year long-term basis, you would be shocked to know that a lot of those portfolios that you felt like were all over the place, even with what we had happen in 2008, probably made somewhere between three to six percent. I mean, it really is amazing. And, and the, the dividend yields have helped out substantially on that. Bo, did you want to talk about the, the bonds a little bit? Um, yeah, so what it's talking about is it kind of like gives an outlook. Um, and, and truthfully, if you follow investing, you understand the bond marketplace is a very, very complicated, complex marketplace. Um, what they kind of, he, he, they bring it back and start say income investors will do better in municipal bonds, high-grade corporate debt, and mortgage-backed securities, see cash in hand. And then it also, it touches on treasuries. The truth about treasuries is treasuries right now are at all-time low yields. And everyone feels pretty confident that yields are going to rise, but it's a matter of when. You know, that, that's kind of the million-dollar question, is when are interest rates going to start creeping back up? on treasury securities, and, and we don't really know that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's sort of a, a difficult thing to, to plan for if you don't know that. Um, some analysts think that we could see uh, rates rise and prices drop on treasuries in 2011. Some people think it might, I mean 2012. Some people think it might be a whole lot of the same. 
It's it's one of those things where you can be right, but your time you might be at the party early. I mean, I really do believe you know it's because it's so interesting to me in 2011 when the Standard and Poor's dropped the rating on the U.S. debt. And then what did it do? It did the counter of what a lot of people were anticipating. It actually drove yields down because so many people were scared that they were flocking to government debt, which they can perceived as very safe. And it's kind of the counterintuitive thing. So markets definitely don't always do what you think. But I do think that over the long term, that scares me. Because I, the other thing, the stat that I remember reading a lot about recently, Bo, is that your index funds on the bonds. Wow. I mean, can you believe, is it up to 35% of your average bond index is made up of treasury debt? So talking about your lack of diversification now within your index funds on the bond side, be careful, guys. You know me. I love index funds. I love ETFs because I like how they let you keep more money in your back pocket because their internal expenses, what you're having to pay to even hold this investment, are so low. But if, if they're getting where they're outweighted, because of the printing of more and more debt and money by the government, be careful that you're not buying into the next bubble because there is some concern there. That, that's exactly right. So if you are a bond investor, which if you have a diversified portfolio, you should be, make sure even the bond allocation is diversified across sectors, across issues, across type of holdings, as well as across countries. Um, if you have questions about that, write me. I'm Bo, B-O, at money-guy.com. I'd love to talk to you about it. Also, housing. Man, do we need to know what's going on in housing? Because that seems to be the drag, as you even put it, Bo, on what's going on in the economy. It was actually nice to see that they actually thought that a lot of the big downturn in housing might be stabilizing in 2012. Um, there's still potential that you'll see drops of 3 to 5% probably in the housing marketplace, but they're hoping it sets the ground for where 2013 is the year where we can start building on, on that. Here's the big drumbeat thing that everybody knows is the elephant in the room. Politics in a presidential election year will definitely have an impact on your financial markets. Um, I'm going to be honest, it's going to probably be a yo-yo effect based upon the different policies that are proposed. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. I kind of I have a bittersweet relationship with presidential election years because I hate the impact they have on my clients' financial accounts, but then the political junkie in me sure does like watching the nightly news and keeping up with things. But it it always makes it a very interesting year, and we just hope that um, if you look at the global scale, that a lot of the positive things that are going on for the country, the United States, take out the federal government spending more and more money. We do have a lot of positive things with the way we've got our balance sheet already in order on the consumer side, on the business side. A lot of things you're seeing across the pond in Europe. We had our cold shower and got taken to the woodshed back in 2008. And now, unfortunately, they, even though they saw it happening to us, they are having to address some of those things on the corporate side. But then what's bad about this, I will tell you, this is the thing about Europe that scares the heck out of me is that they have the corporate problem, meaning that their banks are carrying a lot of debt that they're going to have to address. But then at the same time, the pile-on factor is that the, the countries as a whole, if you go look at the pigs you know, that you, you've heard everybody talk about in 2011, 
those the debts of the countries alone is what's weighing down and give them the double whammy. So we hope that we can all keep on our positive track and get that taken care of. Um, I thought this was interesting because it gives me one more chance to plug about a fundamental concept. It says investors who succeed in 2012 and perhaps a few years beyond will be those who take advantage of the ups and downs that occur within a market that essentially treads water. Well, here's the secret, guys. If you're not doing this, and I had to talk to one of our one of our clients is actually my dentist, and I was in there getting my teeth cleaned, and I was talking to the receptionist that we do their retirement plan for, and she was telling me about her husband's plan, how they you know got scared, got out. And I said, can't do that. I said, this is what you need to know when you're in these crazy markets: dollar cost averaging. Just if you're a young person saving, don't try to get crazy figuring out the times to come in and out. Come up with a good diversified portfolio. Buy on a monthly basis. Get that match from your employer. And that's what breaks my heart is when I hear somebody get so scared that they just shut down participation and even miss out on the 3 to 6% that their employer is giving them free of charge. Mm-hmm. And you know what? When you put 3 to 6% of your pay into a, a 401k because you want to get the full match, say the employer is giving you 50 cents on the dollar match, that's a 50% rate of return. If they give you 100%, we have some very generous employers that actually do that up to 6%. Wow. I mean, talking about making your job easy, saving for retirement, don't do it. And all my old-time listeners, you know, Bo, I hear you use it now, too. If I set up a table right outside your office, you know, and I put a bunch of bags of, of, of money on it, and I say, by the way, guys, when we finish this meeting, don't forget your bag of money out there. You guys would run over each other to get to that that table to get your bag of money. It's the same thing. Don't miss out on that. Um let me figure out how we close this thing out because there was a great quote in here. I want to make sure I don't miss it. Uh, here's, I thought, Bo, and I thought of you when I read this too because I know you're in charge of a lot of some of our looking at our investment decisions. It said, in other words, this is kind of how it closed it out. It said, in other words, investors will have to work hard to earn decent returns, at least in the short term. You'll have to think tactically. That doesn't mean trying to time the market, because believe me, there is definitely a difference, which almost always backfires. Instead, strive to preserve capital, Limit risk and occasionally be opportunistic. Very good, Bo. That's what I I think I got so excited about the quote that I I totally blew it there. But it is one of those things where I want you to take a step back from yourself and just make sure you're doing the right things. You know, I think I can close it out with giving you some things if you're looking at getting your balance sheet and your life in order. You know, make sure if you have kids, you have wills. Mm-hmm. If you have a loved one and you have debt and you have children and, and a loved one and you do have debt and you're the one that they're relying on your income, make sure you have some good term life insurance. You know, we always recommend a good rule of thumb is that 10 times your earnings. Um, I would also tell you the next thing to kind of look at is make sure you have cash reserves because nothing makes you sleep better at night than having that three to six months put into the bank. It does matter what you do for a living on how close you need to be on that three to six. If you're in the healthcare field, you're a nurse, and you know you could get a job two weeks from now if you got laid off today, maybe you only need to be at three to five months. But if you're somebody it would take you you know, a long time to get a job, maybe you need to go over that six-month reserves. Think about these things when you're doing your planning. And then if you're trying to figure out, hey, how much of a savings goal do I need to have? Guys, the 10% that I've always, I love the Wealthy Barber, tell people to go read it. They talk about the 10% concept. That used to be great when you had pensions and you could count on that Social Security was going to be there. We're in a new era now where if you're not saving 15 to 20% of your gross wages, be careful. 
And when I say gross wages, because some of you have written me asking, what does that mean? That means what your take-home pay is before taxes, before Social Security, before retirement. That's what your gross wages are. Now, if you want to know what that 15% can include, it's everything. So if you have a 401k, if you have a 403b, if you have a SEP or, or something like that's a retirement plan at your employer, that counts towards your 15 to 20%. Now, one exception, some people, and this is all of what you want to do, some people count that match from your employer in that 15 to 20%. I think if you really want to be safe and strong, don't count it. Just consider it gravy. Yeah, because that's what, if you can do that, and actually turn yourself into that millionaire next door concept. And once you get over 20% and you're a hyper saver, it's great, guys. Um, I, you know, I've been sharing. That's another great thing about that net worth statement. You get your assets over a certain level and you do have a 10% year in the financial markets. And you say, wow, I made that much money without using my back, without getting calluses on my hands. You're going to go, it's great having that army of dollar bills and money in the bank and the stocks working for me so I don't have to go out there and do this as much. So work on that. Bo, any other closing thoughts before we close this show out? No, we're excited about 2012. We're glad that, uh, glad that you guys are listening and are with us for another year. And if you're brand new, we're, we're very happy to have you. Um, feel free to give us some love out on iTunes. That's what kind of keeps us out there. Uh, additionally, we have a Facebook page if you're onto Facebook. And then we also have a YouTube channel if you like watching videos or just want to see what Brian and I look like. Yeah, and I have, I have a new concept. I'm hopefully going to have us a new YouTube um, with a more in-depth topic in the next two to three weeks because I've been brainstorming about some ideas. I'll be presenting those to, to the team here in the next few days. But, guys, welcome to 2012. Thank you for a great 2011. I think I said it in our last podcast. I was very thankful for you guys as listeners. Um, if you want to check us out, money-guy.com. Also, write the show. You heard us give out those email addresses. But let's hope 2012 definitely is the, the year that kind of puts that smile on things so we can all kind of get things turned around and not worry as much as we have in the past. I think if we all have that concept, if I could say put your hand in the middle, remember big team, little me, this is the year to do it. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.